Hi, this is Gillian Riley and Jen Warren. Courageous Conversations is a series exploring the art of showing up authentically in our everyday spaces. Welcome to Courageous Conversations. I'm Jen Warren, and for our first episode, I'll be interviewing Gillian Riley, the founder of Troublemakers and the concept of Courageous Conversations. Today, we'll be talking about her book, Shame, and her personal experiences with some of these missed opportunities to show up and to speak one's truth. Let's get started. This is my first podcast for Courageous Conversations, which for me is an exploration of the courageous conversations I never had, reflecting on how and why I haven't shown up at the times that it mattered in my professional life, but also in my personal life. It draws a lot from the stories that I've told in my book, Shame, which upon rereading it, I realized was actually a series of attempts at engaging courageously and with greater success in some places than others. And what I wanted to do with this was to try and understand for myself why, why I had a hard time engaging with people honestly and openly and bravely during the course of my professional life here in in Southern Africa and the journey that I've been on in trying to do that better through the process of creating troublemakers and the theme of finding your inner troublemaker, which is really kind of finding your authentic self and finding your voice and being willing to share it wholly with people on a everyday basis. Before you read an excerpt of Shame, I was wondering if you could share a little bit of the background to the title of the book and mm. the sort of how the word is used here in South Africa mm. and also, of course, the double meaning of it. I always call shame a book in two parts. And the first part was when I first came to South Africa in 1993, desperate to be a a first-hand witness to what I thought was going to be one of the greatest experiments in social change in history. And I really immersed myself as much as a 23-year-old young woman can do in South African culture and started learning this new language, this new South African jargon, one of them, of course, being Ach, shame, which means, oh, too bad, but also, oh, how sweet. It was this description used so frequently in such a variety of situations that I really found it incredibly emblematic of South Africans. So the first part of my book is me coming to South Africa and saying, oh, shame, these poor South Africans. I want to help them. The second half of the book, when I go to Zimbabwe in 1997 to head up an HIV-AIDS program at the height of Zimbabwe's HIV epidemic, is more the global traditional understanding of the word shame, which is around the shame I felt at being given a lot of resource and a lot of power to try to impact that epidemic and and to my mind, not doing enough with it. Um, It was shame in having all sorts of grand intentions about assisting the country to come through that time and almost feeling like I I was a bystander. I, I watched as the country burned because I was too scared to step out of my comfort zone and address what was actually taking place around me. So it was kind of from shame to the shame that's now almost a global movement, thanks to Brene Brown and others, that notion of the parts of ourselves that we don't share wholly. I still struggle with those things. 
And yet I think I have a few more tools now and a little bit more awareness. So in the context of courageous conversations, I, I really look at it now and almost try to say, well, what could I have done? You know, how might I have positioned it a little bit differently or how might I have handled it so that it had a more constructive outcome? There is a mixture of continued empathy and understanding, but also I think an effort on my part to become more skillful at managing those things because those are the moments that count. That's when change happens. And maybe to accept those parts of who you were and who you are now and resolve some of that shame at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly. At the same time, I do believe that we have a responsibility when put into positions as outsiders of being given responsibility and power to hold ourselves to a very high standard or get out. So in the years that since I've published the book and had those conversations around the concept, I've actually, as you say, sort of resolved myself a little bit with, yes, I I think it is shameful. What we as an industry, if you will, are doing in terms of our own inability to grapple with the issues that matter most. And it's energized me, if you will, or edged me more and more towards saying, how do we do that? Do we sit and do we wait for reform to take place for agencies or you know shifts grand shifts to occur in institutions or in the sector as a whole or do we begin to make those shifts happen more personally and more regularly and that's obviously where i'm going with troublemakers and with courageous conversations is saying the only way the only antidote to shame if you will is showing up it's not waiting for somebody else to do something different it's you saying here I am, I'm going to engage bravely with whoever's sitting across the table from me. Yeah, And I think on a personal level to acknowledge how we are privileged or marginalized in different ways and, and in intersecting ways, as you've said, it's not being hard on, on yourself to look at those things. Mm. It's being real. We're not all in the same starting line. It's just being honest. In that honesty, I find power to kind of then engage with people who are different from me. You know, when I show up and just, as you say, fully sort of own who I am, good, bad, and otherwise, I can then open up a lot of space in that engagement for us to explore together, as opposed to feeling that I need to somehow hold my ground or defend my legitimacy within that context. That, as I reread shame, is in fact what I was trying to do. It was trying to sort of exist from a place of false legitimacy. I sought refuge in that instead of engaging with people from a place of real radical honesty, if you will, and radical empathy that says, yeah, I am who I am and I'm here. As we continue the conversation, we'll look at what are some of those other source emotions of shame, whether it's fear or insecurity or feeling like one has to follow the rules of a bureaucratic system. But I'd love for you to read a a section of the book as we go on. I realized that I was struggling a lot to have courageous conversations with my USAID counterpart at the time. And it came at a point when I was really deeply questioning the impact of the project that I was running. And donors had more money than they knew what to do with. And I, I had come to question that. 
Mike said to come to his office and he'd provide coffee. By that time, trips to the USAID offices had lost their glamour. All that gracious officialdom now felt tedious. Anyway, Mike's coffee turned out to be as cheap and bitter as all the other coffee in Zimbabwe at the time. We keep hearing good things about your work, he opened, upbeat. Seems your visioning and strategy workshops were a hit, and the follow-up seems to be on schedule too. Great, I'm pleased. Yeah, I, I think we're doing well. Everyone says all the build workshops are, are really professional and helpful in getting them to see their future plans more clearly. Apparently, your Susan's a real leader for the future. You've got to hold on to her. Absolutely, yeah, she's done a great job. I've been at most of the workshops and the follow-ups. It hasn't been very easy to get them to think boldly, you know, to sort of think outside of the... Uh, but Mike wasn't listening. How many workshops have you run so far? He interrupted as he paged through my support. Thirty. I conjured up a big, wide, Midwestern smile, even though the number sounded so small compared to all the other HIV-AIDS numbers. We've done all 15 and follow-up sessions with each NGO. Our follow-up has been in specific skill areas, finance, evaluation. Looks like you're right on track and the budget looks good too. You've spent all the money in the pipeline, he smiled. Absolutely, in terms of numbers, we're right on track with where we said we'd be at this stage in the project. And mostly I'm pretty pleased with our progress. I looked down at my hands, trying not to let even a hint of concern register on my face. There's just a couple of things I wanted to flag now, in case they come up later, to make sure we're um, on the same page. Shoot. The thing is, when it comes time for our midterm evaluation, I think we're going to have a hard time proving we're really impacting the AIDS epidemic. I think the workshops are good, and it's obviously beneficial for the NGOs just to be going through the strategizing and skill development processes. But the bottom line is that we're going to have a tough time showing our capacity building is actually having a concrete impact on infection rates. Mike chuckled and took a sip of coffee that left drops glistening on his mustache. I plowed on. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not entirely sure this is the absolute best investment that can be made on the AIDS epidemic. Even as the words came out of my mouth, I wanted to pull them back in like a bubblegum I could deflate with a sharp breath. It's just a thought, I added lamely. Don't you wish we could just go back to the old days, Mike mused, when we built things, actual schools, houses, when we gave people something tangible and knew it would help them. Not all this friggin' empowerment and participation and facilitation, which I know has its place. I mean, obviously it's necessary, but... He broke off, shaking his head, bemused, but not frustrated. The simple fact is that we don't know if most of what we're doing is really making a difference. I paused to make sure I'd heard his words correctly. Really? You think that? I said, not sure of the implications of agreeing with him. Absolutely, but you'll never hear me say that officially. He did the quote thing with his fingers. Could we do some research, find out what really does work? Oh, Jesus, then we'll play right into the hands of the conservatives when we find out our programs are cutting it. I mean, look at the HIV-AIDS statistics. 10, 20 years into this thing, and we can hardly point to any really big wins. Yes, the groups we work with hardly seem to focus on large-scale impact, I added, suddenly at ease with the moaning. I mean, reducing new infections, things like that. Screw impact, it's all about inputs, isn't it? And yet, you're giving the money to expand. Even though you're not sure they're really making a difference, you're still giving them more money. Again, I almost regretted my words, but couldn't pull them back. Well, who else are we going to give it to? At least these guys have a chance of doing something worthwhile. 
everybody wants to spend money on AIDS in Africa, and if you have a pretty tough time convincing the folks back in the Beltway that there's nothing investable in the middle of the world's biggest epidemic, what choice do we have? My continued arms spread wide. Stop doing it. Shut it all down. I mean, the whole development industry, it's like, what's that thing they say about a speeding train? Get out of the way of it, I said. No, he said with an exaggerated shake of his head. I mean, you can't stop it. This is one fucking train you cannot stop. We shared a uniquely Zimbabwean moment, laughing at our own futility, but it passed quickly. After all, we were the visiting Americans who had chosen to be passengers, if not conductors, on that speeding train. Gosh, if you knew the incredible reflection that I'd, I'd been through and the, the soul-searching and the the pain that I actually felt uh, without sounding too dramatic about what I was witnessing and the industry that I felt like I was propping up there. I wasn't able to share a hint of that really in that conversation. I just edged out a little bit into the realm of maybe we should think about this more. What happened there is that the meeting was over and I left feeling obviously just disheartened and frustrated. And that was it. You know, that was my shot trying to influence the powers that be and with that I put my tail between my legs and pushed on. Those of us who work in this industry we are familiar with the challenges of influencing our donor and for all of us you know we're we know what it's like to try to speak to a power holder and to share concerns or grievances or ideas with somebody who holds the purse strings or pays your salary. It's unbelievably hard and I, I don't want to suggest that it's about bruising through the door and just confronting them with a, a flurry of emotion. But I, I do think about the opportunities that I had to try to more strategically and honestly influence what was going on in Zimbabwe at the time. And I, there were missed opportunities for me to play a more powerful influencing role. After that conversation or in closing that conversation, did anything change? No. If there were changes, I didn't see them. You know, I, I, it's one of the realities that I'm exploring with troublemakers and with courageous conversations is that private and public dance that we play. If Mike shared my concerns, which obviously to some extent he did, he knew the failings of the system that he'd bought into, but decided that they were necessary or at least the, the good outweighed the bad. But if if my raising my concerns and my departure impacted him privately, I don't know. In fact, uh, in the years that followed, there was just more and more and more money for AIDS, as we know, was a, a global cause celeb. And I think they were genuinely in a difficult position of themselves trying to influence upwards and say, as he said, how do you go back and tell them there's nowhere to put your money? What do you do? That's kind of, for me, the, the crux of courageous conversations. What do you do in those moments when you have an idea you want to share, when you have an opinion, when your on-the-ground experience is telling you that the broader choices of whatever system you're working in might be ill-founded, or at least that there's scope for other ways or serious reflection, what do you do? What's interesting for me, too, in, in listening to you read that section is picturing myself in the room and witnessing a conversation between two people that seem to be somewhat on the same page, but yet being still so surface, trying to mask something on your face or pulling in the piece of bubble gum 
And I wonder if you can talk more about that space. What does it feel like to almost touch a courageous conversation and feel the, the potential for it, but yet still, for whatever reason, not feel like you've really dug in there? You're absolutely right. It, it's an incredibly common experience that almost there, for many of us, it's an everyday thing. It's how we know how to be. The mask, as you described it, is strong and believable to the point that people maybe don't know it's a mask. They just think it's you. In this situation, the mask I was wearing was young director of a project, and I had to go in there as director and not as Jill Riley, uh, human. And so that professional veneer was so strong that I, in this case, didn't let a hint of emotion in. And I, I really do think that that is the change maker when you allow that in, when you acknowledge emotion and not just your intellectual take on the situation, but to some extent, yes, there is that. In this case, and I think in a lot of cases, there is an opportunity to bring in our emotional reaction to that situation as well. I don't think Mike had a hint of how deeply saddened and conflicted I was about what I was witnessing on the ground. I think that I could have shared some of that in a way that would have remained completely appropriate in order to say, this is how I feel based on what I'm seeing. I am, I'm really worried. I can name five adjectives. I'm worried. I'm concerned. I could even go so far as to say, I'm really saddened by what I view. And when people receive that, I think it's usually a little bit of a surprise. It's a door that you've opened into yourself that provides them an opportunity to go with you into a more human conversation. It allows them that window, you know, where in that situation, Mike might have also had a little bit of sadness that he hadn't been thinking about. I'm curious, can you touch people that way? And how do you break through to somebody that it's not their tendency to be real or to acknowledge these kinds of questions in themselves? Yeah, I mean, you use the word empathy. When I talk about courageous conversations, I think as for ourselves and for the people who we're talking to or with, there needs to be a combination of authenticity that I will attempt to bring as much of my thoughts and emotions to the conversation to, to give an accurate and full reflection of the issue that I'm here to discuss. And you, as the receiver of that, will switch on a little bit of empathy to say, oh, okay, if it's unexpected, if it's uncomfortable, if it's taking you off course of what you thought you were going to do that day, what is your ability as a listener to hold that? As you say, for a lot of people, that's hugely uncomfortable. They're very unaccustomed to receiving more from somebody than what's strictly expected. And so I think if you are deciding to initiate it, so take for myself in that situation, it probably was going to need to be more than one conversation. You know, I, I wasn't going to walk in and suddenly have this breakthrough with Mike, and then we were going to start redesigning our programs. That That's unrealistic. I think that you need to be smart and, and aware around the person that you're trying to talk to and, and who they are as well. I was always playing the role. I was always playing 
the director because I felt I had to. You talked about what drives that. I was unbelievably afraid that somebody would work out that I was really young and inexperienced and I had no clue what to do. So I spent most of my time in Zimbabwe feeling like a fraud. Or imposter. Mm. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit because I think that's also a very common thing, not only for women, but I think for many people, whether they're changing careers or starting careers or just coming up against friction and whatever it is that they're doing, whether personal or professional, that idea of trusting oneself and one's ability and experience, being confident, all the baggage that comes as we grow from childhood, Hmm. as well as then the sort of inputs from society and media and those around us. And what do you think drives that feeling of being an imposter or a fraud and And then how does that in turn keep the cycle going of not being real? Yeah. You know, I I felt like in this case, I needed to to know things. When I came to South Africa, as I described it, I was incredibly curious about this new place that I was trying to build a life in. By the time I got to Zimbabwe, I had replaced curiosity with certainty. I needed to know. Otherwise, why was I there? So my sense of legitimacy in a space was rooted in my knowing what I was doing, in my competency. And I think that a lot of us have that need to be competent. And as you said, I think it's particularly true for women, but I think it it cuts across. Our sense of worth uh, in a professional setting is largely wrapped up in our competency to execute our role. So if I started to suggest that I thought something wasn't working well, or if I questioned who was I, to question, what did I know? And the reality in this case was that I absolutely didn't. I had some ideas, I had some sort of inklings of where we might explore, but absolutely I didn't have another version of the truth. So I think that competency and professional and technical expertise is our life raft. It's what we cling to as we navigate these sorts of spaces. And I think the idea that there isn't any legitimacy beyond that, that somehow our experiences, our emotions lack a legitimacy within a professional context is what gets us into trouble because actually that's the value, that's our magic. You know, anybody can get the same degree or possess the same set of skills or knowledge, but it's this alchemy between that knowledge and your own self, your own take on the world, your own beliefs, your principles, your passions that makes your offering unique and special and valuable. And I think a lot of us have sort of shelved the one side of ourselves and said, oh, well, that's just, that's soft or it's inappropriate. There's no place in this discussion for, you know, principles and passions and beliefs. That's no, I must just wear my director's hat because I'm safe there. For me, I saw myself to be this very principled human being. And yet that didn't even enter into these conversations. My beliefs and my passions for injustice, inequality, what was, you know, my role had become background noise for how many workshops are we running? How good is my product? And I think that's an incredible loss because then I I could have been anybody in that chair, in that role. That's a little bit of what I'm exploring with Courageous Conversations is the awareness of bringing, weaving more of your whole self into your offering. 
be it professional or personal, and understanding that that's going to take time. Can you point to one experience where these things converged for you, where dissatisfaction of missed conversations or kind of shelving that side of you, as you've said, came to the forefront to say, no, this is now what I need to do and who I need to be. And that switch, when did that happen? And can you point to a feeling or a moment? Well, I would say when it fully came together for me was when I was facilitating my first Troublemakers retreat. Professionally, I had started Troublemakers as a sort of platform for strengthening courageous leadership and and my facilitators hat my organizational development hat were fully on because I really believe in the power of courageous leadership to transform situations and systems for greater impact so I I'd kind of bought it and I was running this retreat and I'd approached it as I had approached other workshops and felt proud as I walked into the weekend it was over the course of four days and on the third day I found myself sitting in front of the group who had themselves shared a huge amount of their own stories, the challenges of trying to show up and bring about change. I found myself on the morning sort of with tears running down my face. I had this deep awareness that I had and never ever fully been with them. They'd never known me. They'd never seen the whole of me. In fact, they'd seen very little of me. I had professionally gotten them from point A to point B, but Jill Riley, a human being, had lurked in the background. And it was the first time that I really felt like I was with the people who were in the room with me. I felt like I had given more to them than I ever had before, simply by sharing with them my humor, some of my pathos, some of my thoughts that maybe made some people uncomfortable, but they took it. And I felt like, what have I been doing? <laughs> I'd just sort of been going through the motions in many ways. It was incredibly profound for me to figure out what it felt like to just be with people and still be a professional facilitator, do what I'd promised to do. <laughs> and we got through what we'd said we would, and I'd experienced the power myself of everything that I'd been advocating. And interestingly, it brought me closer to my own awareness around what makes me tick. It also speaks to maybe you acknowledging that you were breaking down some kind of wall or power dynamic too. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're facilitating a workshop or a training and people are letting themselves be known, but you're not letting yourself be known, you realize that you can be on an equal platform without losing anything as a facilitator, but actually gaining. The, the value of my offering was not, as you say, to somehow tightly manage the process, be in control of it. In fact, it was the most profound, as you've said, letting go of the notion that they were there because I knew something that they didn't know that wasn't what they wanted. So yeah, it was it was that very powerful experience for myself of what I described earlier, which is letting go of that technical expertise and the perceived control that comes with it. And realizing that by doing that, I enhanced the value of the experience for everybody rather than detracting from it because I didn't lose anything. I, I still carried on. 
I've been very open to people that I didn't start Troublemakers because I am one or because I know how to do it and I've written the book. I started it because I wish I'd made trouble when it mattered the most. I wish that I had known how to constructively engage people in courageous conversations around the issues that mattered to us most. So that was just a little taste of what it felt like to do that. This concludes part one of our first episode on Courageous Conversations. Tune in for part two, where we talk more about showing up in both personal and professional spaces.